This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. And I am Zach Moore. And believe it or not, we're back, both back for the second consecutive week, which is a change of pace in recent weeks here. So it's, it's fun to just be you and I here, Senior Chief. And uh, we've got another strong topic to discuss today. But before we do, we have some letters to catch up on from our listeners. Yeah, we appreciate the active engagement we get from the Standard Orbit team and I've been saying we've received positive feedback and some critical ones, and since the negative message from Mr. Wright has aged a bit, I'll ask to start with that one. Yeah, so this message is from David Wright, sent us an email. His message says, Quite disappointed. I was listening to your review of Star Trek 2009, and I couldn't believe how much fluff and irrelevancies. Your attempt at film criticism seems to be how, quote, believable or even consistency of the elements of the film are. But what is important is themes, ideas, character development, and how the movie's elements deal with these. I'm about halfway through your podcast, and there is very little real discussion about this. Also, a lot of generalizations and broad, unsupported abstractions. I would urge you to listen to the Now Playing podcast. I think they edit a lot of this fluff out. I think with your knowledge of Trek, you could vastly improve on that. My take on 2009 is that it is barely Star Trek. Instead of a human drama, it is an action movie with several interesting character moments. Take out the nostalgia, and you have a pretty weak story of an irresponsible, reckless young man learning responsibility because, well, action sequence. So what are your thoughts on that, Ken? I guess I can't argue it but we're not movie critics per se but uh you know it's it's one of those things where i think that uh any any criticism you can kind of take the the good out of it there was there's a feel to that message you know of actually being angry which you know it's it's a podcast um and and i do know i can hear sensitive subjects like people get political and stuff and then i i can tend to get upset which is why i steer 100 percent away from politics <laughs> but when it comes to whether or not we did a a review show well enough or what we could do better i think there's some things in there that that's probably true that we we could learn from and then there's some other things that's like yeah you know we, we intentionally try to keep it light we try to focus on the things i think we have a very different opinion on star trek 09 by the way i think it's a 
great movie, and I think it's one of the best Star Treks out there, and um, and some of the best scenes in Star Trek history, or one of them anyway. That opening scene is probably one of the best I've ever seen. So, Agreed. you know, I, I I do disagree on his feel and thoughts about Trek 09, and I know there's a lot of criticisms about the Calvin universe. But one thing I cannot deny at all, I don't think anybody can, is that it did reinvigorate the franchise and brought a, loon, a lot of new fans into it. So I think it's good there. But Mr. Wright, we, uh, we, we appreciate you taking the time to send us a note and for us to kind of digest what you're saying about it and the recommendations. Because if we can review something and we can enhance our abilities, we'll do that. What do you think, Zach? Yeah, I would say, David, if you uh, looks like you wrote that email when you were halfway through the podcast, if you want to finish listening to the whole thing and then let us know what you think at that point i'd be interested to know maybe we uh, redeemed ourselves there at the end <laughs> <laughs> maybe <laughs> uh but uh, but yeah i mean you know we we have a lot of feedback here and like you said we take the good with the bad so you know everybody has different points of view and something like star trek 09 it does seem to be rather polarizing in fandom I and mean, you and i both love it ken and you know some people don't so some people have a different idea of what you know their star trek is and that's all well and good uh but uh, you know I, I think you know much like you know, people's ideas of what Star Trek is, you know, people's conversation about Star Trek can be different as well. Because with something like, you know, the Kelvin timeline, it's 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 the current Star Trek going on right now. We're going to talk about it all the time. So I always feel like, you know, if we miss an angle one time when we talk about it, we'll probably hit it the next time we talk about it. So it's, it's, it's a long journey of conversation here. And I feel like over the course of the podcast, we'll hit on all the angles uh, that are possible and that we need to talking about these specific subjects. So that's my take. Yeah, no, that's, that's that's good, Zach. I think the other thing that, that we do, well, first of all, you have another another podcast, right? Always Smallville. And we listen to a lot of other podcasts. And, and I I listen very critically, not to um, not to judge the caliper of the podcast, but what can we do better? How can we, you know, take um, maybe a method or a, or a style or an approach that, that can be interesting. So I, I think we learn from each other listening to other podcasts. So one thing I do like is when people are critical of something, they offer a solution. And in this case, he did. Hey, try it, check out this and see how they did it. See if it fits for you. I don't think it's going to um, uh, make us uh, go more towards movie criticism and, and that type of stuff as we are, I think, more into the philosophical approach of Star Trek or the different plot lines in this. And then we've said intentionally, and we want to kind of keep it light in these heavy times <laughs> to a certain degree. But uh, I, I appreciate the note, and uh, we can move on if you're ready. Yeah, let's move on. Our next email is from uh, Rebecca Skipper. I actually happened to walk into my parents' family room and hear this scene from Madam's secretary. I do not watch this show. At first, I thought the characters were insulting my favorite franchise, but now I get it. Please see. And she sent us a link uh, with, a, with a little quote here from a TV fanatic, and it's from Madam Secretary. Apparently, uh, two of the characters are having a conversation, and one of them says, Here's a novel idea. Stick to the Prime Directive. Let democracy take its course without U.S. interference. And the other character says, really? A Star Trek reference? So, <laughs> See, a, little, a little cute moment from... Uh, from Madam Secretary there, and uh, I've, I've you've seen Madam Secretary, Ken? I've seen one mm -hmm. episode, and I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I do. Like I said, you know, it's it's a funny thing that um, my wife really enjoys that show, and so she watches it a lot. So I, I'll catch it sometimes if I'm doing work or whatnot through osmosis, and sometimes I'll I'll put the uh, the laptop down and, and and watch it with her. So I think it's it's a pretty interesting premise, and it's. Um, it's it's you know Hollywood always has a has a special 
special, I guess, take on things. What I will say is I like it because it does not seem to be biased. It just uh, one way or the other. It just it seems to uh, to deal with one one crisis after another, and uh, they pull in the family elements of it. And I will tell you, if there is something about shows that kind of put me off, it's like, I, I really like to get into the meat of the substance and leave the whole family stuff out of it. And you can't do that. I get that. Um, so so there is there is a bit of drama in that show that goes in that direction with, with the kids and so forth, but um, and their adult children, I should say. But I, um, I, do, I do enjoy it. I like Tia Leone anyway. I've always thought her to be a very competent actress. She's got a very distinct voice and, and style about her that I, that I find engaging. And I love her in Jurassic Park 3 as well. Jurassic, that, that's where you went. <laughs> well, at least you didn't say bad boys. <laughs> oh, was it bad boys too? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and then finally, we have another email from Brad Alexander. Pleasure as always to get your emails. Brad, real quick, I know, uh, Ken, you and Richard uh, read one of his emails uh, when I was gone. He mentioned the uh, the uh, the Way I Heard It podcast by Mike Rowe. And I actually listened to that podcast. It's very, very fun, kind of bite-sized uh, untold story of history kind of podcast, and I recommend anybody listens to that uh, who's interested in those sorts of things. I always find those stories interesting. Like, the the kind of angle they take on it is, you know, they tell you a story, but they don't tell you like who the character is. It's like Barry did this and Barry did that, and you know, and then you know what Barry ended up doing? Becoming President Barack Obama. Well, that's the way I heard it, you know. So that, that's it's just, you know these nicknames or some other kind of framing technique of the story to kind of like, oh, they got me on that. T- I didn't see that one coming. So uh, I do. I, I highly recommend Micro's uh, podcast. You know, I, I really like Micro. I like uh, I, th- I like his his worldview on things, and I uh, always appreciate his point of view. So thank thanks for uh, calling out that podcast, Brad. Speaking of, you know, Ken, you say we listen to other podcasts. That's that's one on my feed on a regular mm-hmm. basis. But um, Brad sent us in another email, uh, not to me. To you and Richard, because I was gone when he wrote this email, apparently. So he says, uh, Brad says, hello, Ken and Richard. Uh, now that I've gotten all that honor Harrington stuff off my chest, that's a novel series he had mentioned in his last email, I had a few comments regarding the Battle of the Battles. Both were great, especially from a special effects perspective. I will first cover my gripes. Uh, first, on the Mutaro Nebula battle, I had a complaint about the whole two-dimensional thinking thing. I I agree. Uh, <laughs> they were still fighting on the same plane. Yes, the Enterprise may have dived below the Reliant, but they were still fighting on the same plane. And if you remember, prior to Kirk's order, when they were searching for each other, there was one scene with the Enterprise passing well above the Reliant. Still, it was the same plane. And if it was Admiral Kirk's command to submerge the Enterprise, then she surfaced behind Reliant. If this had been truly a three-dimensional battle, I would think the Enterprise slashing upward from her Z-10,000 meters in a completely different plane, firing torpedoes and phasers straight into her belly. Not unlike two fighter jets. The other thing that I find wrong with Spock's comment is that were they not doing exactly the same thing? It is true. I mean, most Star Trek space battles are two-dimensional, and uh, that's why, um, you know, when I think about this, uh, there's two things that come to mind. One, two-dimensional thinking, uh, that would imply, like, pre-air combat right because any you know con was around the 1990s they had airplanes back then there's some three-dimensional thinking at work there uh yes it's for smaller fighter jets and not like you know giant battleships but the same concept does apply uh and we've talked about this before that was just them uh, they needed to they needed to simplify like okay we're going to use kirk's experience versus con's you know experience and and the whole thing is about you know even though kirk's old he still he still got it you know and, and that's an advantage and kirk even says in the movie the only reason we're alive is because i knew something that he didn't <laughs> and that, that they keep going back to that 
uh, as far as Turk versus Khan. The other thing I think about is um, one of the the few times I've actually seen them do this in Star Trek, uh, and they probably did a lot more in Deep Space Nine because the fight's more maneuverable and there's lots of battles, but in all good things, when the uh, when the Enterprise D 2.0 like, comes up from the bottom... Uh, you see it flying up, right. and it's firing its big phaser cannon at that Klingon ship. I'm like, yeah, that's see, that's the way. That's dynamic space battles right there. So, so I think I think Star Trek has learned over over time how, how to incorporate that. But I guess it's just odd. It would it would look odd if you had all these like ships like upside down and all this stuff because there's no up or down in space, right? But they just they do it to frame for for the movie screen, the TV screen, right? You can't have it. And in fact, these ships get way too close to each other as well. By the way, they would not be this close fighting in a real in a real battle of any kind. Um, and he goes on to talk about the, the Kittimer uh, battle. He says, now, Kittimer, Kittimer, Kittimer. Star Trek has always had a kind of strange relationship with submarine combat. The cloaking device was their homage to subs, you can tell, because even in this scene, Uhura says, quote, if she's out there, she's rigged for silent running. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, they never quite got it right. It is similar to World War II sub combat, where the submarine was at a definite disadvantage. Limited battery power. Had to get visual, a periscope of range and bearing before firing, etc. Balance of Terror was an homage to the enemy below. The sub had to come up to periscope death, decloak to fire, and the Enterprise in firing unaimed photon torpedoes. I know they said phasers, but those are photons. <laughs> yes, in the original version, that's something the remastered version fixed. Um, was a tantamount to a depth charge attack. It's a good man, vocab, man. Good job, Brad. Pulling out the thesaurus there, man. Now, modern submarines do not have those limitations. They have nearly unlimited nuclear power. They're damn near as fast submerged as surface combatants, thanks to the teardrop hole design from the 1950s. They are nearly silent when submerged, and they can fire wire-guided, homing torpedoes that can track a target. I believe that Chang's prototype was a tip of the hat to modern submarine warfare. Now, I agree with you that while Spock is the smartest person in the room I would think that there would be better qualified people than he and Uhura to come up with the concept of <laughs> homing torpedo <laughs> and then he and McCoy to build it especially in the tube while McCoy's running commentary was typically acerbic again with the, with the vocab Brad very impressive but charming really the only thing that was missing was the quote I'm a doctor not a fill in the blank lion and that is not how R&D works. You invent a torpedo upgrade on the fly as it is sliding toward a tube. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think my biggest issue with the Battle of Kittimer was the fact that they invented a homing photon torpedo, but then they forgot it. You never see it in any of the subsequent series. Uh, one other thing, if it was chasing exhaust, why did it hit the fore portion of the ship? <laughs> Both battles... Could have been the exhaust of the yeah. torpedo. Both battles... Had glaring plot holes and tried to reinvent tech and tactics that have been around for 400 plus years. Now, having said all of that, the Mutara Nebula wins, Brad. So there you go, Brad. Uh, thanks for thanks for that insightful email. It's a uh, very in depth, and uh, I appreciate that, man. That's that's some good that's some good insight there. And uh, you know, we, I kind of had some running commentary to that as well. But I think a lot of it again it comes down to it's a balance of like what's accurate and then what's going to look cool on screen because you know at the end of the day this is entertainment here we don't want to if we truly saw how two ships would fight they would never be in the same frame or if so like the camera quote unquote would have to be so far away you couldn't even couldn't even see them you know i think of the um space battle in arena you know of course we don't see it very much because budget right but it's probably the most realistic because the gorn ship is like out of visual range and 
uh, that's a uh, that's probably one of the more realistic uh, fights the Enterprise ever got in because they're not going to be like up on you like a, like a fighter jet would like, fly in real close. These are battleships that don't have to get that close. They would they would keep their distance. So um, space battles in Star Trek, you know, I mean that's uh, Star Trek's never been about the space battles, so it's it's never like. You know, stuff has never truly bothered me, but we've had some great ones. And you know, sorry to sorry to jump the timeline here, Kim, but I gotta say, my, my favorite space battle in all of Star Trek is the uh, battle at the beginning of First Contact with the Borg cube and the, and the Star Fleet fleet, especially when the Enterprise swoops in and saves the Defiant. I was like, yeah, and they start the Enterprise theme. There's just you know, emotional resonance there for me. So that that's my that's my favorite. It'd be sacrilegious here on on Standard Orbit and <laughs> the TNG films. Oh, <laughs> It's not sacrilegious. It, it talks. I think you, you spoke eloquently on how how the tactics have evolved, and you know, in in all good things, that was a, that was a, a great scene. First of all, Brad, great letter, and, and I'm so impressed with an army guy knowing so much about submarine warfare. It's uh, very very impressive, actually, and and all your points are spot on. I think one of the things that we we get bent around the axle with with Star Trek, and I do as well. Uh, to to Brad's points is. They go to such extremes to explain through their pseudoscience and how things work in the 23rd century that when it actually comes to, I guess, warfare, they don't. Uh, <laughs> you know, what, what's the difference between a photon torpedo or a quantum torpedo or range, guidance systems, um, the ability to, 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 to do things? I mean, there was a concept I saw in Voyager that, that had been talked about forever, which was why aren't they just beaming the weapons in? Right and blowing them up from the inside out, which they they actually do finally in a Voyager scene, and it's like yeah that that and it was it was a hollow it was a, a holographic I guess simulation that they did. But at any rate, I think that that's uh, an area of weakness. To be honest with you, with with the show, it's it's obviously meant to show some some fun scenes and to give the audience some some cool eye candy or whatnot, but. It is it is weird that in outer space that they are three two to three hundred years ahead of us, depending on the movie. Um, that the technology and their capabilities are less than what our warfare capabilities are today, and by a lot. And it's <laughs> it just doesn't make a lot of sense. But it is fun to watch, and uh, and I would say that probably. In Star Trek Six was probably the first time you saw a dynamic space battle, right? Because the um, the Bird of Bray did attack the Enterprise from all angles, from above, from below, from side to side. It was all over the place, just given the trajectory of the torpedo. So they did they did get that right. But I agree with um, with Brad. The, the the better scene, the better battle scene played out was the, was the Battle of the Mutara Nebula by far. Okay, we done. Now we're done. Now we're done. <laughs> all right. Well, they say revenge is a dish best served cold. And in Star Trek, it seems revenge is a dish best served again and again and again. Because it's a trope in Star Trek, both in TOS and the movies, for revenge to be a driving force behind the plot. So that's what we're going to talk about today in our topic, Ken. Yeah, it's interesting how this evolved society revenge is driven from our characters or how our characters are drawn in uh, to, a, to a revenge you know, situation or an, a vengeance type of thing where one society's pitted up against a, another. But I would say that um, as as we went down the list and we looked at all the episodes, and there's some that are kind of on the line, and we'll talk about that. If you look at 79 episodes, the number that it's a, a key part of the plot is actually somewhat limited. It's not that bad. It, obviously, when we get to the movies, that changes dramatically. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it becomes like a 180 as far as, as far as their approach and things. 
and in some of the um, in some of the episodes as well, it is also a um, a piece of it. It the plot might not be wholly driven, or something happens within the episode to trigger that response. But I'm I'm looking forward to to diving into these, Zach. So let's uh, let's go. Yeah, this is a great suggestion, Ken. We came up with this idea, and uh, as you said, I think a lot of and that's what we examine here on Center but kind of the pop culture misconceptions about you know Star Trek and Kirk and the original series and the uh the like as you said the movies the ratio is quite high but the original series ratio is not so high so the first one we have here is the conscience of the king when i was a kid i didn't know the word conscience or how to spell it so uh i had you know some star trek trading cards and uh i always said the conscience of the king until that's <laughs> what i used to call this but uh anyway this is this is a great episode it's a very odd episode as far as it's not really any science fiction in it you know uh it's just it's a very human drama it's very appropriate that it's you know begins and ends with a shakespeare play because it's very shakespearean and it's uh and its story and its themes and uh definitely it's it is a revenge it's a, it's a kind of a, a, a double-sided revenge story because you have kodos the executioner and spoilers guys for this 50 year old show uh his daughter is killing off uh, any witnesses to uh, the the atrocities he's committed on Tarsus IV. I believe it was um, 20 years previous. Kirk, had, Kirk was living there, uh, and then also was uh, our friend Lieutenant Kevin Riley was also there. So we have a couple people in the Enterprise uh, officers who are targets for uh, Lenore, uh, Kodos' daughter. And uh, at this point, Kodos is kind of blocked it out of his memory because it was such a bad experience. And, and um, he was... Basically, he's an analog for, for Hitler, you know? I mean, if you think about it, this is about 20 years after World War II. There are all these rumors that, you know, Nazis, perhaps even Hitler, had escaped Europe and moved to South America. And uh, that's what was going on here, you know? This was a, a, a war criminal who had been escaping uh, persecution. Interesting tie-in there because Shatner had been in a, the Judgment at Nuremberg movie where they focus in on that. So there's a lot of themes that tie into this. But um, So Lenore wants revenge... Um, basically for her father because she felt wronged and all this stuff uh to you know to protect him you know so so that's her angle and then kirk and riley want revenge uh for kodos you know slaughtering you know all the people that were in their colony there uh riley takes you know he actually when he finds out about the truth he, he takes matters in his own hands with a phaser and he's gonna go you know kill kodos himself kirk has to grapple with this this all episode and then he has to balance it out with uh spock and mccoy about you know what what should he do what's the responsible thing to do in his position you know obviously he has his emotional reaction but he's a captain of a starship now and a much older mature man and how do you how do you deal with that so there's a lot of good themes going on here uh in conscious of the king and it's one of those episodes that flies on the radar but it's, it's a really good one i think so i i like the whole i guess twist in it that it wasn't just this guy acting like a barbarian he was in a horrific circumstance he made a terrible judgment and the supply ships right i mean the what was all what, the key to the, all of this was that their food supply was infected by a fungus and people were going to starve to death and in order to save at least a portion of it this guy Kodos, he had to, he had to decide who lived and died and the irony is the the resupply ships showed up much earlier than were anticipated, so none of the executions were necessary. And 
you know, there, there's definitely a piece of this where you can tell it has impacted him as well, uh, as far as, you know, that, that knowledge. And he's had to live with this horrible decision. So you've got that mix in it, too, where it wasn't just um, an evil villain doing, uh, conducting these atrocities. It wasn't Hitler, right? It was definitely um, one of those things where, in, in the plot line, the way it's written, is there's definitely two ways you could look at this and and how it's impacted people's lives and um i think that's what makes the 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 writing in star trek so brilliant uh in in that everything is not so just so darn black and white sometimes it is in these episodes it is but in this case it wasn't and i thought they did an excellent job and it wasn't just revenge from from one angle right it was the daughters it was um Riley's, it was Kirk's, it was Kirk's friend, it was all those things. And um, I, I found this episode to be one of the better ones that definitely does fly under the radar. But in its complexity and its cleverness, I, I would highly recommend if it's something that you haven't seen in a while, see it, watch it again. It's, uh, it's, it's really well done. It is not your typical revenge trope. There's, there's a lot to this. Absolutely. So next one we have on our list is Arena. And this is this is one of those ones that are kind of on the line. You mentioned Definitely Ken. on the line. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we have a sneak attack on our Cessus Three outpost by the Gorn, and then Kirk is kind of driven by revenge, sort of, but also like an obligation. I mean, he talks to Spock, and like they have a discussion about like, well, what should we do next? And he's like, well, the next step is invasion, so we have to stop this ship before they invade. Uh, so they they go chasing after this Gorn ship, and that's kind of a, a motivating factor for Kirk, like because you know the Gorn slaughtered everyone at this at this base, so he's you know it's, it's fresh on his mind to get revenge for it. Uh, it's a very small element, I guess, in the grander scheme of things in the story about more about you know it's more a story about misunderstanding and communication and mercy and lots of themes going on. Arena, one of you know the greatest episodes of Star Trek, uh, the Citizen Kane of Star Trek, as has been called on this podcast before. Uh, by other hosts so uh that yeah that's that's the revenge element there and you know a small component but a component nonetheless it is it's um i I guess it's it's kind of the reverse of it in a sense um they're they want to make sure that there's a deterrent that the gordon don't attack attack again and make sure they understand that uh you know retribution would be swift and that's why they're tracking down the ship but at the very very end you know, uh, if it was truly a revenge plot, the Gorn would have died for vengeance of all the um, Federation folks that were that were killed. So I, I think that uh, it is right on the line. I don't know if it's a revenge-driven episode. It's um, it's a misunderstanding, understanding again what Star Trek does so well. It flips things. It, it you know from from another angle, it looks like the Federation are the invaders, and and the Gorn are making extreme steps to make sure you that they never invade invaders, again. As yeah. I will destroy you. I like. <laughs> I, I love impersonating Tay Cassidy. It's like such a cool voice. But um. yeah, yeah. But it was um, great episode. Kind of a revenge, maybe. I, I would not. You know, I, that's why we put it a, on a, le- a lesson that revenge is not the answer, Ken. If anything's to be learned from this episode, so yes, yes, yes. Or you could do it the way TNG does it. You know, by you know being way over the top. Agreed. <laughs> anyway, we move on. <laughs> so court martial is another one uh, focusing on revenge. Uh, this focuses on Kirk being framed for the death of his former. Uh, friend like <laughs> Vin Finney, uh, he had he had called him out in years previously on a previous assignment uh, on the Republic, and that had uh, 
basically hurt Ben's career. Why Kirk had it, you know, ascended to captain. I believe uh, Finney was just a, a, still a lieutenant at this point. Uh, so obviously uh, he, he got stalled in the ranks uh, because of this. And and I guess uh, Ben Finney, he was playing the long game here because that, that was quite a few years ago. And uh, he was the, uh, you know, he is a computer uh, officer on the Enterprise and he reprogrammed the computer to uh, fake some evidence that, that Kirk had, you know, ejected the uh, the <laughs> the pod, which I, I always laugh about this episode because why does Kirk have the eject pod button like on his on his on his arm chair right but you know um we see him hit that eject pod button and that seems like you know damning evidence but uh in the computer records but apparently you know ben finney um had programmed it that way uh to frame kirk bring down his career uh they have a uh confrontation at the end ben is not dead he, is, he, had, he had faked his own death he'd been he'd been hanging out on the enterprise in secret uh, waiting all this thing out uh they uh, classic Kirk fight in the episode saves the Enterprise. It's actually very similar to Space Seed, right? There's a there's a fight in engineering that Kirk wins, and if he doesn't win it, the Enterprise will be destroyed. And of course, he's highly motivated to save his ship, and uh, and he does. So this was this is a case of like, you know, this is a classic. I don't know, like um, just like bad guy trope. Like you wronged me 20 years ago, and I, you know, <laughs> I haven't been able to let it go. You know, just just uh, just complete exaggerated response to something that Kirk was just, you know, doing the right thing as a fellow officer, pointing out this guy's mistake. It's like, dude, let it go. Have a little self-perspective, you know, <laughs> and uh, and you would have solved yourself a lot of problems. So, Well, what, what I think this really um, focuses on a little bit here is ethics and, and how you approach something. So here was Ben Finney, and if I understand it, was also an instructor at the academy. They became good friends at the academy. He was Kirk's senior officer. They're on the Republic um, Kirk's making his rounds. I could see with the clipboard, just like they do on any Navy ship, and and something wasn't done that could have jeopardized the vessel. He reported it. They do the investigation. They find out it was Finney who unintentionally made this error. And just like a lot of today's modern Navy, zero defects. You know, you you get one shot and you're done. Sometimes, uh, I, I hope things are getting better. But it, it was you're right. It was it was a bit over the top. But you know that that. Um, that note in his record caused him to not pr- promote it as, as advanced. And you could see that when they finally meet up, that Finney's quite a bit older than Kirk. Yeah. And that Finney was at the rank of lieutenant commander while Kirk was a captain. So, yeah, it, it probably um, it kept Finney from moving up and, and wanting to probably pursue his dream of being a captain of a starship, which is obviously very a, a very elite position. And what I'm talking about, the ethics piece of this is, you know, this is this is interesting. You are close friends, very, very close friends, and somebody screws up. And if it's fixable, and no one needs to know, uh, and and the person could could learn from it, what do you do, right? And and in this case, it's a little ambiguous. Did did Kirk know it was Finney, um, or was he just reporting what he found when he was doing his rounds? And that's that's what gets interesting. I mean, this guy named his daughter after Kirk. So you know these guys were close. And usually, you know, in a lot of these circumstances, and I've seen it many times, if you find something that could be somewhat serious, but it's fixable, and you know the ramifications could be really powerful against a person's career or whatever reputation, and you know that the intent was not um, belligerent, it was benign, it was an accident, what do you do? And I find that that aspect of it interesting and one that I think could really be explored much more 
because we, we really don't get get a feel for it. Because you could like, oh, Kirk was just doing his duty. Okay, he was doing his duty. I get it. Did he have to go to that extreme? Or did he not know it was Finney in the first place? And if he did, what would have happened? And I think that's a great ethics conversation to have as to doing you know, uh, something along the lines that could impact somebody's career like this. And you could see the impact was huge. I mean, Finney wasn't just sacrificing the enterprise. He was sacrificing himself. There was no, there was no means of escape from, for Finney either in this. So he, he had, he had reached the end, you know, and, um, it's just, just a really, really good episode. I, I know the silliness now when we look at technology and the ability to manipulate data and, and all that other stuff. But still, I like the whole, you know, uh, was it Cogsley? Was the... Yeah, with the, what, what, <laughs> the, the books. books. Yeah, and, 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 and being able to face against the, uh, their accuser, accuser and all that other stuff. And so it was, it was cleverly done, cleverly written. And I think, like I said, there's, there's a bigger piece of this. Uh, if if they had really explored the issue a little bit more, it would have been fascinating to me to find out if Kirk actually knew it was Finney who made the mistake and, and the choice that he made there. Because, you know, if your bestest friends with somebody does something like that, would you have done the same thing? And, yeah, good, good moral ethics questions there. All right, I'm off on my tangent again. I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> no, that's good. That's a good point, Ken. I, this episode has never been really one of my favorites. It's just been one of those middle-of-the-road episodes, and I think you honed in on a good thread there that they really could have examined on, like, truly, like, who is at fault here, and what did you do in that situation? And I, I think they got cut up in other things, like, the, oh, the computer being reprogrammed, and all, all these sidetracks. Right. And had, had they just stuck to uh, the, the story between Kirk and Finney, you know, the revenge thread, which we're talking about today, then that would have been a, a stronger piece and uh, maybe a more fondly remembered episode because there's some good base elements there. But uh, come on, guys, just let stuff go. If you get corrected at your job, take it in stride. Constructive criticism is a good thing. Just let's remember <laughs> well, that. <laughs> a career-limiting decision is, is a little bit different there. I mean, Well, Star Trek, uh, Star, Starfleet's not a military organization, Ken. Let's yes, it is. Um, yes, it is. But That's moving why on. they have uh, people called lieutenant commanders and commanders and captains, <laughs> and you follow rules and regulations. They're humanitarian and peacekeeping armada. But moving on. <laughs> the Doomsday Machine. All right, this, this is a very clear Moby Dick analog. It's Moby Dick in space is what it is, and it's very theatrical, but it's very appropriate. I mean, this guy's lost his entire ship and crew, and he's a broken man. We see him. I mean, when we first meet him, he's just a broken man, and... Uh, when he gets his hands on the Enterprise, takes command of that, he's like, he's gonna, you know, avenge his ship, and and you know, because it's it's a, it's become personal to him now. Like he, he's his per, but that, that's what's that's what's so interesting about this and Moby Dick, right? Because the, the Planet Killer, like Moby Dick, is just it's a thing. It does its thing. It has no has no ego. It has no drive. It's just it's just doing what it does, right? Uh, but the uh, uh, the obsessed captain, being Ahab or, or Decker here, that they project all their you know all their anger and insecurities and and brokenness onto this object they fixate on it because it's like oh well you know uh, it's, it's straight out of hell you know it, it's like no it's just a machine doing its thing you know uh so he puts the enterprise in jeopardy trying to uh get his revenge on the planet killer for destroying his ship and killing his crew uh fortunately the uh, uh spock is able to uh take take back command of the enterprise and and rescue it and, and kirk on the constellation is also able to uh to lure it away from the enterprise otherwise the uh you know other, otherwise the uh, decker and and his new crew on the enterprise would have suffered the same fate as they have 
and uh, Moby Dick. So this is this is one of the clearest A to V translations of the Moby Dick themes, which you see a lot throughout the rest of the Star Trek canon. Okay, I'm drawing my sword, Mister Moore. Okay, because I don't I don't agree with that. Um, funny, funny as you know, I I, I, I don't I, said, I don't discount what most, you're saying as this far is one as one the, of the a- most a- obvious a- cases, and you're like I disagree. <laughs> I disagree, and why do I disagree? Uh, to, to two reasons, and, and people use the the Moby Dick, and Star Trek uses the Moby Dick, you know, Ahab scenario all along. The one thing that that I think is missing from both this and, and even in in um, First Contact a little bit when they when they say Ahab and, and the White Whale and vengeance and all that other stuff is when you read Moby Dick, you're talking about um, a species that's being slaughtered by man that has angered the whale, and the whale is you know, taken is fighting back, right? So we're we're the antagonists. In both these cases, the doomsday machine is a weapon and it's a real threat to the Federation. What happens to Commodore Decker is exactly what happens to Ahab. But I think there's there is a big distinction where uh, also with the Borg, the Borg are antagonists. They 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 want to they want to take over everything, and so the obsession to stop them because of the larger threat that they have, I think, is is a piece of it where it is not in Moby Dick, where this guy's just pissed. He lost, you know, I have, you know, he lost his ship. He lost his crew. He lost a lot of things. And he just, he's, he's after this whale because this whale is, uh, is fighting back. And that's, that's, I guess, the biggest distinction I have with, with the Moby Dick analogy. The, the humans in Moby Dick are the bad guys <laughs> all the way around. Moby Dick, the whale itself, He's just fighting to live. He's fighting to save his species. Well, see, I, it, I never, I never took that that angle on. I just thought it was like nature being nature, you know. And I felt yeah, all sure. the all the projections were, were from from the humans, you know, where bad guys or good guys alike. Like, oh, this mm-hmm. this whale is evil. It's like, well, no, it's just a whale. It's just doing its thing, you know. And you're just getting in its way. I mean, that that, that was my yeah, and that's take fair, on. and that's fair. I just I just look at the doomsday machine as they got to stop this thing, and and Decker being so. Um, so so focused on its destruction he's he's looking at what they have to do but not at the how to do it and and just getting taken away he's just you know what what failed him in the past right the definition of insanity certainly applies if you're just going to keep shooting at it and it has no impact that's not how you're going to destroy this thing and and that's where you're right he is so obsessed with revenge it it clouds his mind and focus and then kind of comes up with you know his his own death spiral uh, kind of opens the idea as to how they could really kill it, and I think they they do a good job of it. It's it's a great episode. I think the the performance in this episode is phenomenal, and I really love the uh, the updated one where it isn't just the uh, the model uh, AMT model off the shelf uh, that, they, <laughs> <laughs> that they put in there because it it is weak as far as you know the Galileo and the constellation uh, are exactly the same size as they approach the opening to this ship, to the right. of the ship right and I, I get I get on that you know again it's not about the special effects in the original series but uh, but I, I, I do I, I do see that 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 Ahab like approach and behavior is exactly the same this guy is just like i'm going to take us all down for the sake of revenge and not accomplish his goal and that's that's the tragedy of it yeah that that is that is the worst it's like look if you're going to go down guns blazing and you know in a blaze of glory and accomplish your goal that's one thing but if you're going to sacrifice everybody and it makes no impact that's like the greatest tragedy of them all yeah that's exactly right same thing in wrath of khan right we'll Mm -hmm. get to that later but obsession Mm mm-hmm that is one of my uh, 
another one of those episodes that not a lot of people talk about, but I thought was brilliant in concept and um, and plot. Right, I, I I don't know about you, but I, I really really enjoyed this this episode. Again, it's it's uh go, going back to Kirk's past, delving into it much like Court Martial, but this one I think they they honed in on more of a more of a stronger central theme with it, and obviously any sense of revenge and uh, revenge and obsession are connected, right? Because if if you if you truly you know want to take revenge on something, uh, it, it's a it's an obsession for you. Without obsession, revenge would just fade away. And uh, I, I they're very appropriately titled obsession as uh, Kirk uh, wanting wanting revenge on this cloud creature that uh, killed lots of his crew and his captain back when he was on the Farragut. So again, delving into Kirk's past, uh, he was you know he was the main character of TOS. So. Uh, we, we get a lot more backstory with him than almost any other character, you know, other than Spock a little bit. But uh, the, the, there's lots of story elements to be mined here because he, he'd been in Starfleet for years and he had lots of experiences. And I, I think pulling back on these on these things, it, it really adds more shades to his character and shows that he's not he's not a perfect guy. Uh, but with the help of his friends, he can accomplish anything. Right? That's the I mean, that's that tremulative of Kirk, Spock and McCoy. You know, much like in uh, Conscious of the King, right? They got they got to talk about this, and they call him out on stuff. I like it when when Kirk and uh, well, when Spock and Bones have to like team up against Kirk. It's like, look, man, if you know we're on the same side here, we got a point. So you need to you need to chill. <laughs> right, right. No, I, uh, I you're right. Revenge spawns obsession um, to the point of destruction. Mm-hmm. Although they they do figure out this one, but at a cost, right? Well, and at even, even at the end, Kirk is willing to sacrifice himself—not in an obsession way, but just a you know, because there's a, a fair uh, Farragut, Captain Farragut, Captain Garavik. <laughs> right. Those names are too similar, Captain Garavik on the Farragut. But uh, <laughs> his son is a security officer, and and Kirk—that's an extra layer of guilt because he feels like, oh man, I got this guy's you know father killed due to my you know inability to react and. Uh, Kirk is going to sacrifice himself at the end, but Garrick's got you know doesn't, and it, you know it, it shows that you know you can still have the self sacrifice. I mean, you know, as we see many times in Star Trek, you can have the self sacrifice to the good end. Unlike you know, Commodore Decker was doing the self sacrifice at the cost of everyone else, with no regard for anyone else's safety or life. But Kirk's was a, com- uh, a completely selfless uh, attempt at self sacrifice at the end of this episode. Again, driven by his obsession, but used in a, in a good way. Right, right, right. I agree. I agree. So, ready for the next one? Yeah, the next one. Let that be your last battle feel. Now, this is actually one of my favorite episodes of the third season, and probably one of the most iconic. Like people, are like, oh yeah, the guys with the white and black faces, right? Um, and it really, it is about revenge. It's about racism. It's about you know obsession and uh, all these, like I said, all these emotions that have been tying together. Because this is, it's an analog for you know race relations, and it just it shows the absurdity of it all. But because of the history that Bell and Loki have with each other, they can't let go of this this hatred and this this vengeance they, they want to take out on each other. Like they they can barely not you know get in fisticuffs whenever they're standing next to each other. Uh, you know, I mean they they grapple with each other at almost every opportunity without being interrupted by the the crew. And you know, had they been able to just let go of their you know built in you know baked in vengeance at this point in their lives that, that they could have moved on but they were so they were so far into their their hatred and their racism and their their need for vengeance on each other now now bell would would call it justice because lokai is a quote criminal uh but it, it really is it's just it's just racist revenge is what it is and they bring they bring down to the planet the planet is in ruins that's still got to stop and they're still going to chase each other forever and uh they, they live for thousands and thousands of years apparently so this 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 revenge need uh, has been baked into them for for, for uh, <laughs> millennium, 
uh, millennia. And yeah, it's 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 a sad it's a sad ending to you can see where, where revenge and, and and hatred and racism will take you for these two characters. So, yeah, I think that uh, sometimes the reason for the killing gets lost, right? There was a there was a seed, there was a there was an element, racism being the one in this one, that that creates the violence, and then the violence creates the revenge because you killed a bunch of my people, now I'm going to kill a bunch of your people. And it, it all comes down to who's going to be the bigger ones to say this, is, this has got to stop holistically. And it never does, right? And it ruins the whole planet. So it was that whole revenge mindset, that obsession of I've got to get this guy because he has blown up or he's done whatever he's done. And, and, and no one's looking at the, at the key issue, which was um, the whole thing the whole reason was just ridiculous in the first place. Now, human nature being what it is, there is so many ridiculous reasons for, for war and fighting and all that other stuff today. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's, it's nuts. Um, and, and ideologies have become so obsessed and polarized now. I, I look at the last battlefield in our own society now, and it's, it's, boy, it's a lot less about race as much as it is about how you think and how somebody else's think and, and the intolerance that we have towards people being able to, to look at things in two different ways. So I see this whole thing playing out, actually, very, very quickly. Um, yeah, just our, just as relevant now stage. as it was in the 60s, for sure. You know, the, yeah, the, but it, it's it's different. You know, it's 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 changed course. It's it's no longer the color of your skin. It's um, whether your, your, your ideology is one way or another. And that's that's what's crazy about it, and uh, and it's just as silly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. Just as I silly. mean, that's that's the brilliant it's thing about this episode. Yeah. They make it so idiotic. You're like, oh, well, that's that's the reason, really. Uh, and and you know, I want to say that uh, you can obviously hide your revenge behind you know being in the right. You know, like like Bell, he's a, he's a police officer, right? And he's like, this this man's a criminal, and you know, he's obsessed. He's chased him across the whole galaxy looking for him. I was like, man, you're going you're going a little above and beyond in your job. It's almost. It's a bit like um, uh, Les Mis, right? You know, with uh, Javert mm-hmm. and um, um, Russell Crowe and uh, Hugh Jackman. No, <laughs> Javert and John Bell John, you know, stealing a loaf of bread and all this stuff and just obsessing over this guy. It's like, look, you know, look, I did, probably did some bad things, but as you said, they were in response to bad things and who started this this cycle and, and who knows, right? I mean, as you said, uh, they forgot at this point. All they have is their hate and their need for revenge. But, but you know, it, it's interesting. When anyone, when anyone can, like, justify their revenge like oh well he's i'm just doing my job he's a criminal i gotta bring him in you know it was a, i think you're going a little too far with this guy so there are a lot of there's so many themes in this episode beyond just what's you know on the surface which is you know kind of the point as well so yeah and i think that's why a lot of people oh it's too on the nose well there's subtleties to it when you when you back away a little bit and um you know it's uh, it, it gets the message across about racism it gets the message across about hate it also gets the message across that, that, that both sides, in order to be successful, have to let go at some point. And um, it's, it's a tough one, right? Because um, it's, it's not human nature. It really isn't. And it, it really is difficult. And I think, you know, you look at the, um, you know, it, it all comes down to when people are just tired of fighting and dying and, and which side is going to just say, okay, this is crazy. We got to stop this. So anyway, on to the next one. On to the next one. On to Turnabout Intruder. Now this episode, your favorite episode, right? No, my one favorite episode uh, of I, all time. I I don't think it. You know, I don't think it's as awful as other people would say. Uh, I think there is some merit to it. Some interesting stuff here. 
But, uh, I mean, it is a revenge story. It's a, it's a jilted ex-girlfriend. Hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned. And uh, Janice Lester is seriously scorned. And she has had... And talk about letting stuff go, right? We're talking about Ben Finney from uh, X amount of years ago, whatever. She knew Kirk at the Academy. And um, they did not work out. And she has not let this go. And uh, she... I mean, I, I'm not sure if i'm not sure like if she was seeking out a machine like this or she just happened to find one and was like oh yes i know exactly what i'm gonna do with this but you know she discovers the body swapping machine swaps with kirk takes over his life the whole subtext of it is unfortunately like oh women can't be captains that's such a point of debate it's been people debating that for 50 years now about what that means and if you know starfleet was truly you know sexist in that way um i feel like the recent episode uh, of star trek continues the winds of change actually covered that very well if anyone wants to uh, delve into that subject a little more but uh janice lester she feels wronged by kirk as a lover as like starfleet by an organization i mean she's got a lot of you know things to take revenge on and um and she does and you know it, it, sure it's a little in some parts it can't be but i actually i actually it's very entertaining to see shatner play a woman playing him you know like it's 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 actually pretty good acting people will laugh at it but he he changes a lot of things and and really in inhabits the presence of that um and also very unhinged right because she's revenge minded like she goes on these tantrums you know she's she's clearly not all right in the head uh and that all again stems from obsession and vengeance it does it's uh i agree with you it's not as bad an episode as people think it is or if if you watch it enough there's a lot of nuances in it i think that that um you know will drive behavior that, that needs to be examined more closely i also think that this is where it gets it gets difficult for me because none of us want to think or believe that starfleet would uh keep a woman from from helming the ship in this advanced society and whatnot and there's been a lot of i think i think you know they say the writer screwed up when that comment was made the writer and, gene roddenberry being in there <laughs> <laughs> getting writing credit, which is always amusing. People's like, "Oh no, this is not Gene Roddenberry Star Trek." We actually actually wrote this episode, guys. So I'm just saying that's that's what I'm saying. It's it's crazy, but you know, sometimes you know, it's one of those things. I think it's a it's a low it's a low point as far as this advanced society thinking in this way that a woman cannot be a captain of a starship. Now, in the '60s, um, women weren't allowed to serve on warships. Period. So, you know, they might have been looking at it, hey, at least they're serving on warships, but, you know, they're not capable of, of leading it. I, I don't know. I think, I think it's a shame uh, that, 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 that that piece of um, Star Trek culture, you know, it's, like we said, if it's on screen, it's real. It doesn't matter what um, backdoor memos were made behind the scenes or whatever that, uh, it, you know, it shouldn't have been, it happened or it didn't happen. It happened, and it was said, and unfortunately... You know, um, in this in this universe, I guess we have to assume that um, that women can't be starship captains at that time. Now, obviously, in Enterprise, they ignored it as they should have, and and women were were was it Rodriguez was a captain of the Columbia or something like that? Something like I, that. I, I forget her name. Yeah, but anyway, so I think that they they ignore it, they blow it off as they should. I think that's the right thing to do, but it, it did happen, and. Um, and, and, you know, the person who wrote it uh, was sexist. <laughs> There's no other way to say it. 
<laughs> by writing that line, mm-hmm. they certainly were not engaged or, or aligned with the, uh, the Star Trek universe as it was meant to be. So that's it. That's said. That's done. And uh, she has a right to be ticked off. Yeah, I was going to say. She, yeah, she's over the top. <laughs> yeah, she's you. over the top, but she has a right to be I ticked off. I question her methods and her, her response to it, but I would be angry, too, if I were her in her situation. So Yeah, and I also wonder, too, if, you know, if... You know, back it was. It wasn't until the early 1980s that women were allowed to go to the Naval Academy, right? So, that's not all that long ago. And 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 I wonder for for women who who joined the Navy, and you know, like we all know, a lot of people know of Admiral Grace Hopper, right? Who essentially came up with um, all all the kind of computer programming methods that became the foundation for today's technology. And she was a brilliant person, and and it, and obtained the rank of admiral, I think first female admiral somewhere in the 1960s and was around until the 1980s and 1990s um but she was a specialist you know she wasn't going to be captaining a ship or anything but i do wonder for women that joined the service before they had um the ability to obtain certain they could obtain rank but they couldn't obtain certain positions still the same today in some some combat areas um fascinating to me that uh you know she went in you would think to starfleet academy with her eyes wide open to, to what the limitations were, unless um, uh, Gene Roddenberry, uh, the fictional one in Starfleet, decided that uh, at some point, no, women aren't capable. They can be, they can be executive officers, but not, not commanding officers. Just the whole premise of that is just ridiculously silly, and that's why I do write it off as far as Star Trek canon goes, but it's real. Well, I mean, maybe they just wanted to add another element to it beyond just the jilted girlfriend thing, because you know, I guess that would be a little cliché. Just the, the jilted mm-hmm. girlfriend. Now, if you were just a jilted girlfriend, would you really want to do the Freaky Friday body swap with your ex-boyfriend? I mean, that's, that, 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 I mean, that's the key. That's why she wants to become Kirk, right? And maybe right. I, I feel like, you know, to maybe give them a little credit, they were just like, okay, we want a body swap to happen. We got to find a reason for it. And that was, mm-hmm. like, the only reason they could come up with at the time. But, hey, look, <laughs> it was at the very, very, very tail end of the show. They were, you know, on fumes at this point. Everybody was like down about the being canceled they just need to get some episodes out and again not as bad as people say as his reputation precedes it i feel like if this was not the last broadcast episode it would not get the like oh turnabout intruder garbage right it's like well i mean yeah not one of the greatest but <laughs> not complete garbage and uh like i said her her revenge was had a little bit of you can understand where she's coming from basically so yes yes absolutely okay we move on to the movies. To the movies. So the Rathacon. Rathacon's success is a double-edged sword, right? It's brilliant. It's a great film. One of the best Star Trek films. I most consider it the best Star Trek film. It very well may be. Maybe not my favorite, but it's my second favorite. <laughs> uh, but definitely one of the best. Uh, the, the, the revenge template here, we see repeated so much in the, in the movies. As we were talking about, the ratio to the movies... For revenge is so high and even you know getting beyond i mean uh, no pun intended but beyond the, the the tos movies and kelvin movies the next generation movies like i said like all of them are just like this like the template is there and um yeah i mean you, hey we saw what happened to khan at space seat he got marooned on city alpha 5 by kirk things and not you know when they left him there planet was okay you know it wasn't a wasteland it wasn't terrible he didn't drop him off on tatooine or something come back 15 years later we find out cd alpha 6 exploded six months after they were left there so they were it was a pretty tough ecosystem there for 15 years you know and uh i would i would you know i would be mad if i were con too but at the same point it's like dude you kind of put yourself in the situation not so much i mean obviously 
you you wanted to take over the Enterprise and take over, you know, get back to your mission of, you know, taking over because you felt like, you know, you were, you were superior and therefore you had the right to rule over people, which is not a good attitude to have. Um, did you deserve to be dropped off in the middle of nowhere? I don't know. I mean, at that point, like, hey, you, you committed mutiny and we're going to, like, kill the captain and the crew and all this stuff. And so you got you to gotta look at, like, how you even got here, man. And uh, I don't know. I, I feel like uh, obviously it's very it's, – it's, it's an unfortunate situation how <laughs> City Alpha 6 exploded. Uh, but that's not Kirk's fault, you know. I mean, yes, Kirk put him on that planet, but he did it because Khan tried to kill him and take over his ship. So you understand Khan's point of view. If you are in that situation, you'd be mad too. It just, again, projecting all of your frustrations of your circumstance on, on like the one thing you can fixate on, and that was uh, Admiral James T. Kirk. Right. As Yoa Kim pointed out, you have a starship to do what they want and a, a very powerful device. So, you know, they, they could they could create a lot more havoc and have a lot more power and do a lot more things. And yet Khan won't let Kirk go. And uh, and that eventually is his undoing, as it as it usually is. Very much akin towards um, Ahab. Mm-hmm. Of course, he actually sputters the same lines as Ahab and as Kirk. he goes down with his ship. Kirk is the whale in the situation. So <laughs> that's right. That's right. So yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, how do you take a movie who, who, whose original title was "The Vengeance of Khan" and not say it's not a revenge episode? <laughs> so uh, that's 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 key there. Well, there's always that. There's always that one guy, like the henchman, the, like the the voice of reason, right? Like you said, Yokim there, and he's like, hey. Um, I think you've proven that you're better than Kirk. We escaped our exile. Let's let's go live our lives because they they have the, they have the means to they have the Genesis device. They can go shoot it at a planet, make a world for themselves, which they wanted all along, right? Like, but that's all off the table now. Khan is completely fixated on Kirk, and the, and he's not the same guy. You know, he was a very sophisticated, put together guy in Space Seed. You know, but here he's a broken man. It's warped. You know, these years of exile, the death of his wife has warped his warped his superior intellect, and what, where he can just be goaded into following Kirk into a, a tactically compromising situation. I mean, they could have just waited out. You know, Reliant could have waited out for Enterprise, but no, Kirk Kirk's like, hey, on the comp system, that's all you need. Basically, calling him chicken. You know, <laughs> calling him out. He gets to go in the Mutar Nebula, and that's and that's all yeah. she wrote there. So. Because you're unguided torpedo missed. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Uh, so yeah, I mean, Rathacon, the, the quintessential Star Trek revenge story for sure. We don't really need to go into any more detail there. We all no, know what no, it's no, all no, about. There. Star Trek Three. Uh, what what's the revenge angle here, Ken? I I took it from uh, from the Klingons' point of view a little bit there that. Uh, you know they're not they're not too happy with uh, with the with the direction the federation's going and you know i know they were going out to kind of preserve their race i guess became a piece of it but towards the end you know you have uh, kirk's kirk's son being killed um you know the, the the klingons being so brutal in this episode kind of created that that revenge factor as well although i'm not saying that kirk killed Kruge. Krug, 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 sorry, Krug, because of that. Um, Krug was so focused on having that weapon and that power. So it might have been more of an obsession than a revenge type of thing. But the death of Kirk's son definitely impacts future movies in the way people think, uh, or the way Captain Kirk thinks about the Klingons. And though there is never a stated, I'm going to get back at them, um, there's definitely a reluctance to want to work or trust them because of it. So I think it might have been a, a plot point that manifests itself more in future movies than it does in this one, because it's spoken about in five a little bit. Uh, definitely six, it's a big piece. And um, 
you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. So I, again, it's it's kind of like the the iMud or piece of the action. There's there's elements of it. It's not it's not a revenge based um, film by any means. Yeah, as you said, this thread goes on to Star Trek VI, which will be our next one on our list here. And again, much like you know, Conscience of the King or Obsession, this is focusing on Kirk's need for revenge. Uh, it's a, it's a beneath the surface revenge. It's like a like a um, subconscious need for revenge against the Klingons for him because I mean, it's not it's not very it's not on the surface. It's not very present. But when Spock's like, "Hey, we should help these guys," he's like, "No, we shouldn't." You know, and then that, that that's where that comes from from the death of his son. He even makes his personal log about it, which they use against him in his trial. Very damning evidence there. Uh, but you know, it's about this one is about overcoming revenge and letting that stuff go, right? But that that's that's why Kirk can continue on and characters like Khan cannot because they can't let it go. Uh, he he puts his prejudices and aside, and they save the day. And at the you know it, it and then at the same time, you know the Klingons have their own kind of sense of revenge as it Boer, you know her father has been yep. killed and that's why she she hates kirk and all them because she thinks they're responsible for the death of her father and so they, they come to reconciliation at the end on a micro level and that helps in reconciliation on a macro level for the klingons and the federation so it's it's a, it's a great kind of redemptive story about about revenge and, and the power of letting it go I agree. I agree. And I think that's what makes it such a, a great movie. And it, and it harkens back to what we were talking about before with Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Uh, until the two sides agree that the killing has to stop or the, the behaviors are, are self-destructive for both, nothing changes. And when you when you take the personal element of it in, into account, and, um, you know, I... I would, I, I could, I cannot speak and have not walked in a person's shoes where somebody has had somebody lost um, due to someone's actions and, and, and you have to face that. But, you know, I remember Gene Roddenberry saying he hated Star Trek sex because of the racism and the bigotry that was displayed. I think there's an element there that if your very own son is killed by um, a race or, or a group of folks that are known to be militant, um, very less tolerant and, 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 <laughs> I guess focused on expansionism, uh, like the Klingons are. There's there's some quote unquote justification in my in, in your head. You know, it's like if if they did something stupid, you know, if they if they overmined because they were trying to develop more weapons and to continue continue to build their arsenal for for conquering other worlds, and it goes south on them, and bad things happen. You got to think there's a piece of you in that dark spot in your heart that goes, yes, this will finally stop them. And then, well, wait a minute. What do you mean you want to help? We, you want us to help them? What are you crazy? You know what these people want to do? Do you know what they've done? Do you know the damage that they have caused? And so it takes a um, a lot of reflection and an understanding that uh, for all of us, right? The big lesson there is you can't paint with a broad brush. There is there's 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 good and evil in all aspects, and you've got to seek out that good. And um, I do believe that there is pure evil out there. Don't get me wrong, but uh, I do not think that pure evil is within every society. There's there's good and bad, and I think that that's what Star Trek VI does so well, is it reaches deep into Gorkin's heart. He realizes, kind of like Gorbachev did, that uh, they can't keep going in the same direction. Um, it's it's not good for the people. It's not good for for the overall society. In this case, it's not good for. Uh, the Federation, and it's not good for the Klingons to keep going in this direction. And it's the uh, and the people that are so afraid of change that cannot uh, that keep pushing it back. So I think that this is a a great a great story element that looks at 
the drives for revenge, and as you, I think, so eloquently put it, Zach, says, wait a minute, um, we, we can't keep going in this direction. We just, we've got to stop. And I've got to forgive and let go in order for the greater good to happen. And I think both Azad Bure and Kirk do that wonderfully at the end of this movie. Absolutely. So, Star Trek 09, mm-hmm. Vengeance Story, Nero. 100%. Again, this is the Rathacon template. I know I give the TNG movies a hard time for like, oh, you guys just copy and paste this template. Well, it looks like, uh, you know, Calvin Timeline's a little guilty of it as well. Uh, a little. <laughs> every movie. Every um, movie. So, yes, obviously Nero is Khan. Old Spock is Kirk. Uh, rinse, repeat, you know. <laughs> uh, Nero, one of the weaker villains. Uh, just because he's underdeveloped. They had so much to do in this movie as it was. They had to set up the new universe. They had to set up all the new characters and the new crew, introduce us to them, get them in their proper uh, positions You know, that, uh, on, on the Enterprise, right? Nero is, is almost an afterthought here. Uh, so his vengeance feels kind of shallow. And then since we don't have a proper context, it's like, dude, Spock was trying to help you, man. What's your problem? Like, I just, again, uh, he's, he's a broken man. He's lost his family. He's lost his world. He's seen his whole planet be destroyed. Uh, he's mad. he focuses in on Spock because Spock was supposed to prevent this. But like, look, you can't fault the guy for for not succeeding. I mean, he was trying. You know, if if he was just like, if he was just like turned his back on you guys and said, "Hey, it's gonna be fine, guys. Don't worry about it." Or you know, screw you. I'm gonna do better things. Uh, but he was actively trying to save Romulus with the, with the red matter. So I, I think that I thought that would get him some credit. But not not Nero's eyes, and he's just fixated on Spock, and um, and then that becomes a just completely absurd obsession, much like you know Khan just goes off the deep end. Uh, Nero, they get a second chance of life. They go in the past. Uh, there's uh, they could start like they could go back to Romulus and, and help them prepare for this, you know. Uh, but instead of doing that, he just wants to go around destroying every other Federation planet, which is a little little extreme overreaction, I think, on Nero's part. Well, he wants them to feel the same pain he did, so. That's that's the way he's driving it, and I, I don't know if the character's underdeveloped. I think the scale and scope of the destruction, and that's the funny thing that can get away from us in these in these universes, so to speak, or in these plot lines, is just how big, right? I mean, if you're talking about planetary destruction of you know enormous scale, billions and billions of lives gone, and you know here's Here's the Federation, and in this case, Spock saying, "We we have the technology to save you. We're we're going to come and do it." Now, you know, the one Star Trek 09 is such a good movie to me uh, in in so many aspects. But there there's two aspects where where I think it, it falls short. One is this this revenge story, but it does allow for everything else to kind of happen, and allows for that incredible drama on Vulcan, right? And it's it's pretty powerful, but you know, the, the whole thing about a star going supernova and the ability to stop it just doesn't make any sense, right? As soon as the, if if our sun increased by a small percentage, Earth is doomed. <laughs> it's like doomed because we're going to bake right. long before the star reaches our atmosphere. And of course, they actually show the star like right outside of uh, Romulus. So, so it's like, well, they're already cooked, dude. Um, they're, they're cooked long before... Uh, Spock could P- get perhaps there they have a planetary it. shield of some kind, can like in like in space like in space balls, you know? That's right. <laughs> That's right. That could be, you know. But when the star disappears, then what? <laughs> you know, it's just it's just one of those things where, you know, it was it was done quick in 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 and it was it's to serve a plot and and I know it's all pretend, but sometimes those those little things get me. But it, it's 
Nero's character based on his enormous loss, his enormous loss, and, and it seems like that he may be the last of his kind. Uh, I, I do get the, um, the way that can impact somebody. Uh, it, you know, rational thought goes out the window, and, and it does in this case. And, and, of course, then you add what is also in the movie or in the, in the script, but we don't see, is the 20 years of imprisonment and hard labor. So not only does he lose his planet, but he's thrown in jail for a long time. Um, you know, hard labor for 20 years. That is not conducive to um, healing and repairing one's soul. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. I mean? And I think sometimes those elements uh, in, in, you know, in J.J. Abrams' um, quest for a fast-paced movie, if 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 a couple things and i've heard heard matthew rushing say this a few times if you let things breathe a little bit it's okay if it adds to an understanding of the character and i think nero's character could have even been more understood because when he when he showed up in the federation he's like where is ambassador spock where is this guy what happened and then 20 years later he's he's on his way to vulcan to destroy it so it's uh it's it's interesting there but um you know, then you, you flip it to, and I think we can get through these next two pretty quick. Mm -hmm. You get into into darkness. It's Khan. It's the Wrath of Khan all over again. Um, the revenge factor is is being used. and um, Against, against RoboCop, not Kirk, yeah. Yeah, in this case, it's, um, it's, it's the rest of Khan's crew that he thinks has been killed. And, uh, you know, you, you push the wrong button with him. You have enhanced ambition with... Uh, his en his enhanced physiology on top of all this, his en his enhanced sense of vengeance, and he's going to take you out, and that's exactly what happens. And again, it wasn't um, was it necessary? Could have been done a lot better. I think so. I think they had something. I think they had you know let's 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 take the whole um, Benedict Cumberbatch con thing and all that element out of it. Let's just look at it. Could could they have done a lot more with this movie? They could have. Again, if they had put the right pacing in, if they allowed things to breathe, if they, you know, didn't make it about, you know, um, jumping technology barriers we'd never well, seen I, I in do, Star Trek. Well, I do you know? like the conversation it starts, right? Because, you know, Pike is killed and Kirk goes on, a, like, a mission of vengeance to, you know, right to get him. And, you know, Spock and him have this conversation where, where Spock pretty much convinces him, like, you know, just, just flat out murdering this guy is not the answer. We got to you know, bring him in and face justice, you know. And, and that's a good that's a good dilemma. That's why I think the movie, it starts so strong, and then it just kind of gets a notch lower as the movie continues. It kind of delves into, you know, cliches and, and sci-fi action and, and you know, rehashed old movies. But uh, the beginning is, is very strong in the questions that it poses about, you know, vengeance and justice and terrorism. And what's our response to that? And even at the end, it's a very hopeful, much like Star Trek VI, Into Darkness, is a very hopeful message at the end with Kirk's monologue. You know, that's not who we are. You know, we're Starfleet, we're better than that. So despite some missteps along the way, I, I, overall, the, the theme and, and the message of the movie is, is, is true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely a, a revenge plotted film from two or three different angles in like I said, it's one of those movies that had so much potential and just didn't quite live up to it. But one movie that I think did live up to its potential was Beyond. And we're not really sure what's driving this this vengeance throughout the movie until, you know, we kind of learn the identity of who the who the villain is. But it was really cleverly done, I thought. Um and it pulled in a couple of universes that you haven't seen in Star Trek before as well, you know, as well-defined. And that was pulling in the uh, the Enterprise TV show era uh, into it. And um, 
and they they did a good job with it. But but Krull, his whole you know feeling um, cast aside and and pushed away after fighting you know tremendous amount of wars and battles and all this stuff. I mean he he's he's a classic PTSD um, who was able to kind of take the take the fact that they they weren't being rescued they you know and 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 kind of being sent away without really dealing with the after effects of what war does, war does to an individual is is um a very relevant subject for today it it really is if you if you look at the amount of suicides and things that we're dealing with you know it's 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 a very real issue and um it, the revenge piece of it of you know you, you don't get this and 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 unity maybe a little bit too on the nose with with fighting that 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 unity or or smashing down barriers and all this stuff is not the way to go because all he saw was, you know, every time they opened a door, there was a bad guy behind it trying to take him out. <laughs> so uh, it, it definitely went into an extreme there. But, you know, still, it's, um, to me, it's 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 in my top five of all time Star Trek movies. And I thought it was it was brilliantly done. Again, it would be nice if in Star Trek Four or the next one that they do, they kind of go the way that Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home went, which was, you know, two movies in a row with a lot of violence and heaviness, with obsession and revenge kind of being in the middle, and and to create a a plot line where there's real threat and there's real um, tension, but they 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 come together and and they find a way to 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 win, and I'd love to see that in the next Star Trek movie. Yeah, did we need revenge here and beyond? Probably not. Uh, I think a lot of the speculation was, oh, this is going to be like an ideological thing, right? The Federation has some some ideologies, and it's you know manifest destiny and all that, and then then crawl and whatever his you know stance is is in against that on an ideological level. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That's different. But no, it became revenge story. But they did, they did so well. It was so well executed. Like that, I didn't I didn't mind. You know, I know I know before the movie came out, I was like, I hope they don't do some stupid twist with the villain like they did with Khan. I didn't like that. And then they did this exact thing, but it worked out because it was a whole. It opened up a whole nother uh, avenue of, of conversation and revelations about his character and the Captain Edison and all the stuff you were talking about, PTSD and all that and dealing with that. Now, I know that's a trope you're, you're kind of sick of like, and on a deeper level of revenge, like, oh, look, a soldier who can't let go of the military is going on, you know, he's off off the, the, the reservation, so to speak, right? Yep. Yep. No, I, th- I, th- I think what a uh, lot like you, Zach, when I... When I was seeing the previews and getting an understanding of what this was before we understood the whole Edison plotline, was just just that you know our, um, the Federation type culture trying to engage another culture that was like everything you do is wrong and they and they switched the lens and it didn't have to be a revenge movie. I think that that would have been better and I wish they had gone in that direction because that happens all the time. I mean that's that's Osama bin Laden right there. You know, we don't want your Western culture of values in this area. We want you out. And that's what created the whole Al-Qaeda. Everything else was based on that, right? They did not want secularism. They don't want other religions and societies messing with their extremist point of view. And that's where I thought it was going to go. And I thought that would have been just as interesting and just as timely. And and it didn't. So that that's a shame. But you know, uh, one thing it did allow us to, that it allowed it to do, and which would have been a real hard one to kind of pull in was, like I said, pulling in the uh, the Franklin in that era of Star Trek, right. which also brought in a lot of smiles and happiness, and a lot of people really enjoyed that that piece of it. So, you know, you, maybe you had to sacrifice one to get the other, and it was a win-win. Don't know. Absolutely. All right, Ken, well, I think we've all had some hot takes on revenge here, but you know what revenge is a dish best served? 
cold. And that's not the only thing we've been talking about this week on Shrek FM. Here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, The Ready Room. Family? We are her family, not you. It gets upset at Archer. Like, you're stealing my daughter. Is she Hoshi Archer now? What is going on? <laughs> what are you talking about? Daughter? What's a daughter? What's a family? And then he asks Archer to call back in the afternoon. Like, yeah. maybe by 3 p.m. everything will make sense. Standard orbit. I don't know why, but my first reaction to time travel is, oh no, don't do it, don't do it. And um, I don't know if a lot of people feel that way. The good news is, is that whenever Star Trek does it, normally they execute it really well. Warp five. So we need to hire some samurai to uh, defend us. So they go out uh, looking for some samurai and they find a... A, a group of, of um, about seven of them yeah like seven samurai who are you know maybe down on their luck the 602 club but there are two moments and I, I realize you know we, we've just started recording we're already sort of derailing our own show here <laughs> to just throw out all these great thoughts and memories and, and moments but there are two moments in this movie that I had completely forgotten about because I think if you haven't seen this in a few years, um, and this is probably the Bond movie I've seen more than any of the other movies, maybe with the exception of Goldfinger. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfn contact and look in the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm, and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and of course in the Babel Conference. Type Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at trekfm and click discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron on the network on Patreon. If you visit Patreon slash TrekFM, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash TrekFM, you'll find the current goals and different milestone contributions along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details on patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our great associate producers for Standard Orbit. We have Renee Roberts, Norman Lau, Aaron Harvey, Tim Robertson, Nick Anastasio, Richard Marquez, and Corey Elrod. Yes, thank you guys so much for your support for both Standard Orbit and Trek FM. Uh, so, Ken, if people want to find you out there on the internet, where can they find you? Hey, you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference and engaging people when I when I have the opportunity. You can also find me on Twitter. My uh, Twitter handle is at BostonSCPO, 
And we, uh, we like to tweet out all our new episode information as soon as we get it, as, lo- as well as our colleagues. So look for me there. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. And I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that Young Superman series from the early 2000s. And you can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>